Here it is. From deep inside your radio. Today, January 4th, 2015, is 1415. The next time a date of such numerical significance occurs, it will be 365 days from now. Welcome to a very special edition of Hello, Welcome to the Show.
from the edge of America. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this first edition of Le Show for 2015. Think of it. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been living, we're living through a number of, of uh, experiments. We're living through an experiment in which people devise a wide variety of chemicals for us to ingest in, in combinations never before experienced, just to see what happens. You know, good stuff could happen. And another experiment to see what happens in the wake of a huge financial crisis if different policy options are chosen by different countries. And what we've seen so far is that the nations with the most severe doses of austerity as their financial policy are doing worse six years after the great financial <laughs> Great Britain, which had a kind of austerity, but not as severe as those apply, as the policies applied to, shall we say, the periphery of Europe, is doing better. And best of all, with the least austerity, the United States of America. You'd think... Yeah. Anyway, the International Monetary Fund a year or so ago came out with the they were the agency that was one of the vectors of the austerity policy for the periphery of Europe, the other being the European Central Bank. And uh, the IMF came out with a review of their performance, which concluded that maybe austerity was not the best policy for dealing with a financial crisis of the kind that uh, we have just gone through and uh, did kind of a, a fairly rigorous chapter and verse about how that was there were other things they could have done that would have been more helpful now ladies and gentlemen i bring all this up because now comes another report about the work of the imf it's like almost like they were set up to do the wrong thing. Tough debt repayment policies at the IMF helped fuel Ebola's spread in West Africa by lowering West African countries' focus on healthcare spending. This is according to three British professors, authors of a new study. Researchers with three top universities said Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone did not adequately invest in their healthcare systems because they were trying to repay. IMF loans. Countries were following IMF austerity programs for between 7 and 21 years each. The study was published in The Lancet, which is the British medical journal, Global Health Subjournal, the latest attempt to assess how the Ebola epidemic overtook major regions of West Africa this year. More than 20,000 people infected as of December 29th. The IMF aims to become part of the solution to the crisis, yet could it be that the IMF had contributed to the circumstances that enabled the crisis to arise in the first place? The study asks. The IMF denied that the terms of its loans to the three countries hampered social spending, noting data pointing to improved health outcomes in those countries. The fact is that Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia were doing relatively well trying to overcome years of instability, as they emerged from conflict, said a director, deputy of the IMF Fiscal Affairs Department. 
But the study authored by Alexander Kentel... Oh, no, I'm going to not pronounce that name. Uh, two professors at Cambridge, Martin McKee of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and David Stockler of Oxford, concludes that the IMF helped the spread of Ebola. Won't you give? You can't. You give whether you know it or not. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of AFAC! Raids, drone strikes, and other military operations designed to kill or capture high-value targets in the Taliban have had little effect overall, in part because of the militant group's ability to replace its leaders. We joked on this program for years about the fact that the United States kept knocking off the number three in al-Qaeda or the Taliban, only to have another number three pop up. Yeah, indeed. This, by the way, though, is according to a 2009 CIA analysis released by WikiLeaks. The document is uh, dated July 7, 2009, and it's titled Making High-Value Targeting Operations an Effective Counterinsurgency Tool. Yeah, they know how to write clickbait, don't they? The report, based on open-source material, adds that senior Taliban leaders' use of sanctuary in Pakistan complicated the targeting of high-value folks. Moreover, quote, the Taliban has high overall ability to replace lost leaders, not lost leaders, lost leaders, a centralized but flexible command and control overlaid with egalitarian Pashtun structures, who you would want those, and good succession planning and bench strength, unlike most of the teams in the NBA, especially at the middle levels, according to clandestine and U.S. military reporting, said the report. CIA spokesperson said the agency would not comment on purported stolen intelligence intelligence documents, which means, yeah, you got it. But, you know, you could still, law of averages says enough drone strikes, you're going to hit somebody that's high value, don't you think? And now, ladies and gentlemen... Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's obvious that even to the um, there's there's a, a guy who's the head of standards and practices or some such title at NPR, and he gets mail from listeners. They, they have listeners about um, the grammatical and usage errors or or transgressions that drive listeners crazy. It's it's even struck him that uh, too many people are starting their sentences in response to questions, their answers, that is to say, with the word so at the beginning of the sentence, as if they're continuing a thought, which in fact they're not, because they're just starting out. So it is, and that's a continuation so, that's not what I'm, don't even, it is um, spread to that level, it's mainstream to that point. We now begin 2015 with a pristine example of the form taken from uh, a talk show on public radio by my friend, uh, hosted by my friend Warren Olney. A, a very interesting show about the nature of solar power, but the guests seem determined to put the so back in solar. So what does this mean then in the developing world particularly? 
so it can mean a lot of different things. Back to the least developed, tell us about Uganda. So Uganda is an interesting country, obviously. At what, what what's happening here in the United States? Um, so uh, I see solar technology to answer your first question as a technology. It's a technology disruption. What 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 is what kind of change is this going to mean in terms of automobiles, for example, mm. and yeah. other things that we're familiar with? Yeah. So. We are uh, quickly transitioning from, um, so think about digital cameras. So how important then is government policy and uh, how is it different state to state? Because every state has a public utilities commission. So certainly we are a nation of 50 markets. What about this issue of uh, a technology and overloading the system? Yeah, um, so Eric is totally right. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. Well, 2015 has ushered in, I think, probably the best new euphemism for, boy, did I screw up, since uh, hiking the Appalachian Trail. Representative Steve Scalise, Republican congressman from Louisiana, number three in the House leadership structure under the new Congress, has come under fire for the past week after his 2002 speech came under scrutiny. A Louisiana blogger unearthed posts on a white supremacist message board from 2002 that described Scalise's remarks at the event hosted by an organization founded by former KKK leader, that's Ku Klux Klan to you, David Duke. Scalise's office has teetered the line between confirming he spoke there and saying he might have. The speech was part of the European American Unity and Rights Organization conference, a group the Southern Poverty Law Center is called a hate group. Scalise has apologized for the speech, saying he disagrees with the views the organization promotes and that at the time he had, well, that he was thinly staffed. So he couldn't get them to vet all the invitations he received to speak about his opposition to a tax proposal. Quote, it was a mistake I regret, and I emphatically impose the divisive racial and religious views groups like these hold. He said in a statement, I'm very disappointed anyone would try to infer otherwise for political gain. After Scalise apologized for speaking at the conference, one of the conference organizers told Slate.com that reports linking Scalise to the conference were a mistake. And the conference had spoken to another meeting held at the same day at the same hotel. Meanwhile, David Duke has threatened to reveal the names of others, other political leaders who've spoken at his events, because he's appalled at the hypocrisy. But, again, former Ku Klux Klan leader who had run for governor of Louisiana in 1991... The campaign slogan for the bumper stickers of his opponent, the roguish Edwin Edwards, were pretty explicit. Quote, vote for the crook, it's important, unquote. And yet Steve Scalise didn't know that David Duke was an ex-Ku Klux Klan leader because he was thinly staffed. He's sorry. Major publisher HarperCollins, the publishing house owned by... Rupert Murdoch's Nice Corp has apologized for omitting Israel from maps in atlases that it sells to English-speaking schools in Arab countries in the Middle East. Quote, HarperCollins regrets the omission of the name Israel from their Collins Middle East atlas, 
This product has now been removed from sale in all territories and all remaining stock will be pulped. HarperCollins sincerely apologizes for this omission and for any offense caused. That was the text of its statement. It remained available on vendors' websites such as Amazon and Barnes & Noble on Thursday, however. According to the Jerusalem Post, the apology came less than a day after Collins Bartholomew, a map publishing company that is a subsidiary of HarperCollins, told an international Catholic Newsweekly based in London that including Israel in its primary geography atlas for the Middle East would have been, quote, unacceptable to their customers in the Gulf, and that leaving Israel off the maps incorporated, quote, local preferences. Nice people doing nice things. CBS radio sports talk host Jim Rome is drawing plenty of ire from folks in the marching band community. He tweeted during the Rose Bowl on Thursday, quote, is there anyone not on a marching band who thinks those dorks running around with their instruments are cool, unquote? A bunch of outraged tweets followed. On Friday, Rome deleted the tweet and apologized. Quote, Band Nation, I hear you. I was out of line. I apologize. I do not condone bullying of any kind. And that was my not my intent, unquote. Imagine a sports talk host getting out of line. Deadline Washington, a New York congressman who pleaded guilty to tax evasion last week, has announced that he's resigning before lawmakers return to Washington. Following his guilty plea, Republican Representative Michael Grimm, two M's, said he would stay in Congress as long as he could, but he can't. He issued a statement late Monday saying in part, quote, after much thought and prayer, I've made the very difficult decision to step down from Congress effective January 5th. This decision is made with a heavy heart, as I've enjoyed a very special relationship and closeness with my constituents, whom I care about deeply. Unquote. Grimm entered a guilty plea last week to one count of aiding in the filing of a false tax return. Even under indictment, he was reelected to his Staten Island seat. A former Marine, an FBI agent. He was elected to Congress first in 2010. According to the indictment, the tax fraud began in 27 after Grimm retired from the FBI and began investing in a small Manhattan restaurant called Healthalicious. The indictment accused him of underreporting more than $1 million in wages and receipts to evade payroll, income, and sales taxes, partly by paying immigrant workers, some of them in the country illegally, in cash. After his court appearance, he said he planned to stay in Congress. He also apologized for his actions. I should not have done it, and I'm truly sorry for it, he said. What, how, how much do you have to train a guy? He's been through the FBI. He's been through the Marines before he knows not to do that. What, Boy Scouts? Dayline Seattle King County Metro. That's the rapid transit system in Seattle. Has apologized after one of their drivers told two blind passengers that the bus was full and they had to get out. Those passengers said they felt demeaned and discriminated during the ordeal. They want all Metro drivers to get better training. The couple said the driver claimed the disabled section on the bus was full and they would have to find another bus to ride. Metro says blind passengers are not required to ride in any one section of the bus. How well trained does the driver have to? Do you have to send him to the Marines? Deadline, Williamston, Michigan. U.S. Airways apologized this week to an Iraq veteran for the way some of its flight attendants treated his service dog on a recent trip from Florida to Detroit. Eric Calley, a former Marine who served two tours in Iraq, spends civilian life advocating on behalf of other returning veterans. He suffers from PTSD and has struggled through that to get to where he is today. Two things rescued him, his son and his son, S-U-N, a Doberman pincher, specially trained to help vets. 
Son is by his side almost every minute, monitoring his heart rate, his breathing, the tension in his muscles. On December 7th, a U.S. Airways flight attendant from first class walked back to where Callie was sitting in coach. They were allowed to do that? And repeatedly yelled at him because Son had put her front paws on an empty seat next to him during turbulence. No one on the flight had any problem with Son putting her paws on the empty seat, according to another vet sitting behind Callie. But then the flight attendant appeared. He just started going off about how the dog can't be on the seat and you have to get that dog down. The flight attendant was so rude that a dozen or so other passengers began to stand up for Callie and filed complaints when they landed, according to the vet sitting behind Callie. He started telling us he was going to have the police waiting when we landed because we were being hostile, said Aaron, the passenger. It was blatant disrespect. I couldn't just sit there and not say something. So he said something. U.S. Airways sent Callie a letter this week apologizing because, quote, it appears that our airport personnel didn't handle the situation with the quality customer care we expect, unquote. The airline's parent company, American Airlines, says it is, quote, actively responding to the matter. We sincerely apologize to Mr. Callie for his experience and thank him for his service to our country. Just that template just slides right in. A uh, spokeswoman for American said she couldn't comment on whether any disciplinary action was taken against the flight attendant. It has certainly been brought to the attention of leadership and has been followed up on, she said. Callie, the uh, vet in the incident, said the apology is insufficient. And another airline apology, because they're so good. United Airlines has apologized to a New Jersey family for the way one of its employees behaved during a disagreement over seat accommodations for a child with special needs. The apology came after Elite Kirschenbaum blasted the airline for humiliating her family when a United flight attendant refused to compromise and allow Kirschenbaum's three-year-old daughter, who is unable to sit upright on her own, to sit in her mother's lap during the flight. The three-year-old Ivy suffered a stroke in the womb. Kirschenbaum had prepared to hold Ivy in her lap, just as she had several times in the past, including on the trip to the Dominican Republic for a family vacation. This is what they were returning from, as according to the Washington Post. Several flight attendants passed her seat as Ivy was seated on her mother's lap, some of them saying hello and acknowledging the child, but a fourth flight attendant insisted that Ivy sit in the seat by herself, despite pleas from the family and their attempts to explain that Ivy is 100% dependent on other people and does not have the ability to walk, talk, or sit by herself. The airline's apology on Thursday followed a firestorm of criticism that came after Kirschenbaum's story was first publicized by ABC News. The United representative apologized in a phone call for the flight attendant's, quote, lack of compassion and just understanding that we were doing our best to come to a resolution and we weren't being treated like people, said Kirschenbaum. She was just really standing behind the rule, which, of course, does need to be followed, but not being able to have any flexibility in terms of listening to why we were in our situation. Kirschenbaum said at the time of the disagreement she was not aware that there were no exceptions to the FAA rule because on several other flights with Ivy, the child had always flown in her parents' lap. So American, U.S. Air, and United, congratulations. Oh, and those were the Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
closing both my eyes, shutting out the world, going deep inside within me. So much has been lost in this world. So I'm looking for love within me. Oh, I really hope it's there. I hope it's there. Closing both my eyes, shutting out the world, going deep inside within me. So much has been lost in this world. So I'm looking for love. This is the show. Now, ladies and gentlemen, public to private, private to public. The rendezvous never quite halts. One hand keeps washing. Nothing new, really, about the revolving door between private industry and um, public agencies in both the executive and legislative branches, but just the latest and the greatest. Legislators, you know, they've been listening to lobbyists and consultants for years and leaving their jobs to uh, go get lucrative employment on K Street to be able to lobby their former colleagues. Now legislators are appointing lobbyists to manage the day-to-day affairs of Congress for the House Intelligence Committee. You know what they do. 
The change in the guard means a lobbyist for the defense contractor formerly known as Blackwater is now in charge. Congressman Devin Nunez, the incoming chairman of the Intelligence Committee, Republican of California, announced that Jeff Shockey will be the new staff director of the committee as a paid representative of Academy, with an I, the third new name for Blackwater. Shockey and his firm have earned $80,000 peddling influence on behalf of Academy. In previous years, the very same committee has investigated Blackwater over secret contracts with the CIA. Now as staff director, the highest position on a committee for a staff member. Shockey will oversee the agencies that do business with his former employer. Shockey also represents a number of other companies with business before defense agencies, General Dynamics, Coke Industries, Northrop, Grumman, United Launch Alliance, Innovative Defense Technologies, and Boeing. We know why we're here. The role reversal for lobbyists to take brief stints in Congress after an election has become a normalized process. In a previous investigation for the nation, reporter Lee Fang found corporate firms offer employment contracts with special bonuses for their staff to return to government jobs, ensuring the pay cut they receive for passing through the revolving door to become public servants doesn't have to alter their lifestyle. Uh, another committee hiring a lobbyist. The Oversight Committee has hired Podesta Group lobbyist Sean McLaughlin as his new staff director. As its new staff director, McLaughlin's client list includes the Business Roundtable, a trade association for corporate CEOs. And Senator Rob Portman, Republican of Ohio, has hired a new chief of staff, Mark Isakowitz, who represents BP. Thank goodness they're not a British company. The revolving door waltz, ladies and gentlemen. It's the waltz that doesn't quit. The worst of the worst. Five men held at the U.S. prison in Guantanamo Bay in Cuba for more than a decade have been sent to Kazakhstan for resettlement, the BBC reports. Kazakhstan. Now, you know, that's a fairly grim little enterprise in uh, Central Asia. The... um, Head of it is a dictator. Uh, there have been some human rights violations. But it's uh, represented, at least for public relations purposes, by former British Prime Minister Tony Blair. Did he have anything to do with this? We don't know. Three, t- three Yemenis and two Tunisians had been captured in Pakistan as suspected militants with ties to al-Qaeda. That usually means bounty hunters turned them in. U.S. officials say the men never were charged and no longer pose a threat. Dodging the question of whether they ever did. 28 inmates have been released from the facility in 2014, the largest number since President Obama took office. The five men were unanimously approved for transfer after a review of their cases. This is the first time Kazakhstan has taken in Gitmo prisoners. This followed extensive negotiations, according to U.S. officials. I wonder if Tony Blair sat in. No reason was given for why the men were not sent to their home countries. About half of the remaining 127 inmates at Guantanamo Bay have been cleared for transfer, yet they stay in Guantanamo Bay, and if they don't eat, they get force-fed. Because they're the worst of the worst. Don't you get it? Now news of AFPAC. 
NATO has held a ceremony in Kabul formally ending its war in Afghanistan. After 13 years of conflict and troop withdrawals that have left the country in the grip of worsening conflicts with armed groups. The event was carried out a week ago in secret. Doesn't that tell you everything you need to know? NATO's ceremony to get out of Afghanistan had to be held in secret due to the threat of insurgent strikes in the Afghan capital. Yeah, it's, it's sacred is good. The uh, U.S.-led International Security Assistance Force combat mission was replaced on the first of this year by a NATO training and support mission called Resolute Support. That will serve as the bedrock of an enduring partnership between NATO and Afghanistan, according to U.S. Jeff, U.S. Army General John Campbell. That you can take to the bank, but the bank has closed. He paid tribute to the international and Afghan troops who have died fighting in the conflict, saying, The road before us remains challenging, but we will triumph. Last year was Afghanistan's deadliest year during the war. At least 4,600 Afghan soldiers and police were killed, and there were many other civilian deaths, but really, who cares about them? Al Jazeera's Jennifer Glass, reporting from Kabul, said the Afghans were very concerned about the complete pullout, citing a security vacuum. That'll keep your coffee beans fresh. The government has also failed to name a cabinet, still. So it's not just the lack of security that's concerned, but also political instability. The election was held last April. They still don't have a new cabinet for the new government, because democracy. News of AFPAC, ladies and gentlemen. And now, news from outside the bubble. Well, we haven't heard a lot about IS lately and their horrible doings. But here's what's going on in our friend Saudi Arabia. According to the newspaper The Guardian, two Saudi women detained for nearly a month for defying a ban on females driving cars have been referred to a court established to try terrorism cases. Activists said it was the first time female drivers have been referred to the specialized terror criminal court. And their detention is the longest of female drivers in Saudi history. They're not being charged for defying the driving ban, but for voicing opinions online. Friends of the perps declined to elaborate on the specific charges because of the sensitivity of the case. And they spoke anonymously for fear of government reprisal because it's so free there. They told the Associated Press the women's defense lawyers had appealed against the judge's decision to transfer their cases to the terrorism court, which has also been used to try peaceful dissidents and activists. That really is terrorism when you stop to think about it. Human Rights Watch says Saudi authorities are expanding a crackdown on people who criticize the government online. It says judges and prosecutors are using a 2007 anti-cybercrime law to charge Saudi citizens for peaceful tweets and social media comments. The two suspects had a combined Twitter following of more than 355,000. That's outrageous. Come on, people. They were vocal supporters of a grassroots campaign launched last year to oppose the ban on women driving. If that's what it takes to get Twitter followers... I'll support women driving, too. News from outside the bubble, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now... He's not a general. He commands 
would be less likely to be insecure than the IT department of the Department of Homeland Security. And yet, the Office of Inspector General of the DHS enclosed in a, disclosed in a new 62-page audit report that DHS has made progress to improve its information security program, but non-compliance by several DHS component agencies is undermining that effort. Unquote. Wow. Analysts' evaluation of DHS information security program for fiscal year 2014 cited a shift to risk-based management of information technology security and information of an agency-wide performance plan. Those were positive developments. However, the inspector general raised concerns over a lack of compliance by components of the agency and urged DHS leadership to strengthen its oversight and enforcement of existing security policies. Homeland Security, ladies and gentlemen, how can they let us down like this? The OIG recommended that DHS further strengthen its information security program in the areas of continuous monitoring, security authorization, configuration management, and IT security weakness remediation. DHS has taken steps to improve its information security program, says the Inspector General. DHS also has taken actions to address the President's cybersecurity priorities. However, while these efforts have resulted in some improvements, components are not consistently following DHS policies and procedures to update the system inventory and plan of action and milestones in the department's enterprise management systems. That was some jargon spun out by the inspector general. Furthermore, components continue to operate systems without the proper authority said the Inspector General, saying, we also identified a significant deficiency in the Department's information security program. The Secret Service did not provide the Chief of Information Security with the continuous monitoring data required by the Office of Management and Budget. Without this information, the Inspector General noted, the Chief Information Security Officer was significantly restricted from performing continuous monitoring on the Department's information systems. We don't want that, do we? Really? At Homeland Security, I feel safer just knowing how insecure we are. And with the official end of U.S. combat operations this week, after 13 years of war, a federal auditor, you know who, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, has concluded it is unclear how much Afghan women have benefited from the U.S. efforts or even how much has been spent on them. Now, how much... I spent on my woman. I mean, hello. A report by the Office of Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction found the Pentagon State Department and U.S. Agency for International Development failed to properly track what was spent for women's advancement in hundreds of programs. U.S. officials have reported major progress in providing better education, health care, and business opportunities for women. But there is no comprehensive assessment available to confirm that these gains were the direct result of U.S. efforts, says the Inspector General. None of the three agencies can readily identify the full extent of their programs, projects, and initiatives supporting Afghan women or the corresponding amount of funding expended on those efforts. And it says the responsibility for the programs was fragmented with dozens of offices involved to some degree, but no one unit knowledgeable about the entire effort. U.S. officials have for years boasted that girls' primary school enrollment has risen from virtually zero to 80%. Maternal mortality has fallen from 1,600 deaths per 100,000 to 327 last year. Political participation has grown, says the U.S. But while the State Department and Agency for International Development said the 3 million girls now attend school, quote, they did not identify what specific U.S. program made that possible, how much was spent on the endeavor, 
or what the eventual outcome of the enrollment was, said the Inspector General. U.S. agencies say they've spent about $2 billion on Afghan women to date. Not to date Afghan women, you understand. Including about $1 billion between 2011 and 2013. But the Inspector General could only verify that $64 million was spent for women in 652 programs. The auditor found similar shortcomings four years ago and urged the agencies at that time to more closely track the spending. The result? Crickets and tumbleweeds. News of Inspectors General. Ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. From CPR in Washington, I'm Milton Getzler, welcoming you to the rebooted 2015 edition of Said and Done. Said and Done, not only about the arts and the artsy, but now about the craft and the crafty as well. We'll meet the disruptors and the interrupters, the pie in the sky and the pioneers. And it's all here on Said and Done. Sharing, they say, is caring. Of course, they say a lot of things that rhyme, but if there was a buzzword in the tech economy last year, it was sharing. And in the wake of ride-sharing and home-sharing, there are whole new worlds of sharing just waiting for a venture capitalist's wink to be shared with us. One of the newest seeks to solve a not-so-new problem, the cost as well as the affordability of child care. Kimberly Woodcock-Guillaume of CPR's Too Many Names desk fills us in. Kim. Milton, for women trying to combine motherhood with a career in a stagnant economy, the problem of child care is... A continuing problem. Absolutely. <laughs> the cost of child care is rising faster than I don't know what. And that's even if you can find a facility. Which many people can't. Way. And that's where Jarvis Nagel came in. Where did he come in from? <laughs> Not really important. But he saw a need and a cool new way to fill it. So, the really golden insight was that most stay-at-home mothers are caring for one or at most two young children, unless they're Mormons or Orthodox Jewish or something weird. They're totally in caring mode, and they've probably got some caring to spare and share. Mom's probably on her smartphone a lot of the day anyway, so it's easy for her to respond to a tweet or a text seeking quick temporary child care. A few hours with one or two extra children to care for, you know, she's able to pay for you know, a week's diaper service or something. And that's the whole idea behind CareShare. That and the profit split. Kim, mm -hmm. isn't part of the cost of conventional child care involved in background checks and in insurance and licensing? Well, not as much as you'd think, Milton. A lot of it is just rent. And unless the mother who responds to your tweet or text is homeless, that's a non-issue. And since somebody, a husband or a boyfriend has already gone to the trouble of, of, of checking out your care sharer and entrusting her with at least one child, as Jason puts it. There's no need for us to reinvestigate the wheel. <laughs> well, is this system, uh, by the way, what's it called? It's called care share. <laughs> Here's that rhyme again. <laughs> yeah, yes. they're cool. Is care share already operating or is it uh, still just a concept? No, it's, it's totally operating in three Midwestern cities. Here's Charlene, who uh, used CareShare a couple of times already for her 18-month-old toddler, Preston. 
I didn't have to book a long time in advance. I could use PayPal. It was totally on my way to Pilates. And Preston learned a really valuable lesson that the world is full of strangers. A part of that lesson, Milton, mm. is that uh, not all care sharers are uh, moms. Oh, yes. Uh, Preston's care sharer or care share care. It works both ways. <laughs> yes, it does. But Preston was cared for by a man, right? Yes, by a house husband whose care share name is Big John. Well, does Jarvis Nagel have any reassurance for parents who might have some concerns about leaving their child with a strange man? Oh, he sure does. This is so totally ethical because every care share experience is peer-reviewed. Anything even looks wrong, boom, you go straight down to the bottom of the queue. It'll be a very long time before you get a text or tweet from us again. Well, it sounds like he's a real believer in the sharing economy, Kim. He's a mover and a shaker. Mm. Uh, his next project, Milton, aims at the role neighbors used to fill in our lives. You know, the person nearby who could lend you some milk or go to the store to pick something up for you. Sure. And and what's Nagel's idea? Uh, simply that there are still people sitting around with spare would-be neighbor time. Mm -hmm. uh, they just might not be in your neighborhood, <laughs> but you could uh, tweet or text them to do a chore or lend you an egg or something, and uh, that could be over real quickly. So they'd be sharing their neighboring skills with uh, a much larger neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. It's been beta testing in Cleveland, Ohio, and Lansing, Michigan uh, for the last couple of months. You know what it's called? What? Nuber. <laughs> Thanks, Kimberly. Thank you, Milton. And, of course, we're all welcome. And for this week, that's all that's been said and done on Said and Done. We had help this week from the Friends of Starbucks. Supporting news that sounds good when you overhear it in a Starbucks. Next week, more about the people who are remaking our world and living in it on Said and Done. This is CPR, Continental Public Radio. And now, news of the atom. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Save, cheap, too cheap to meet. Save, save. the atom yes sir happy you sound a little hungover yeah i've had a few you i guess you have happy new year to you <laughs> deadline seoul south korea three south korean workers died this week after apparently inhaling toxic gas at a construction site for a nuclear plant being built by south korea's monopoly nuclear power company that company has come under recent threats by hackers According to a company official. Well, that can explain the release of gas, couldn't it? I don't know what could. The accident at the construction site in the southeastern city of Ulsan, know it well, came as the state-run Korea Hydro and Nuclear Power Company was on high alert over the series of threats by hackers. Choi Hee Yi, company spokeswoman, said there was no reason to believe that Friday's accident was linked to the cyber attack threats. The victims were working at the construction site when they fell unconscious. Always a bad sign. Yes, and were taken to a hospital where they later died, according to Troy. The company has yet to determine the cause of the accident, although the leaking of nitrogen was suspected, she said. That's not poison. Anything's poison if you got enough of it. Nitrogen is used at nuclear plants to reduce the oxygen levels in the cooling water to slow the oxidation of the equipment or to control pressure levels in tanks. 
according to Kim Sang-gyong, a spokesman for the company. Couldn't confirm whether the plant under construction was using nitrogen that way. Oxygen can... You're saying oxygen can kill you? Oxygen can kill you. Of course. Anything. Aspirin can kill you. Dateline Vancouver... Too much aspirin, that is to say. Dateline Vancouver radioactivity from Japan's crippled nuclear reactors has turned up off the British Columbia coast, and the level will likely peak in waters off North America in the next year or two, according to a Canadian-led team that's intercepted the nuclear plume. We're proud of our plumage. The the radioactivity does not represent a threat to human health or the environment, but is detectable off Canada's west coast, and the level is climbing, according to a team led by oceanographer John Smith at Fisheries and Ocean Canada. The team's seawater measurements reveal Fouke radioactivity first showed up 1,500 kilometers west of British Columbia in June two years ago. Uh, that's somewhat more than a year after the accident. By June of 2013, the Fukushima signal had spread onto the Canadian continental shelf off the British Columbia coast. By February last year, it was detectable throughout the upper 150 meters of the water column, says the report. They predict... The Fouke radioactivity off North America will continue to increase before peaking in 2015-16 at levels comparable to those seen in the 1980s as a result of nuclear testing. And that didn't hurt anybody. Asked John Wayne. Tokyo Electric Power Company diluted a dust suppressant that rendered it ineffective and allowed the spread of radioactive materials that contaminated 12 workers at the Fouke No. 1 nuclear plant in summer a year and a half ago. The suppressant is supposed to prevent radioactive dust from getting into the air and spreading. And you want to keep your dust sort of in one place, don't you? Yes, you do. TEPCO not only diluted the suppressant to levels well below the manufacturer's recommended standard, but it also did not use the suppressant on a daily basis when removing rubble at the stricken nuclear plant. The sloppy use of the, use of the dust suppressant continued for about a year. You want to be less than sloppy with your dust suppressant, don't you? That's what you're saying. That is what I'm... Well, that's not what I'm saying. I don't know. I don't use dust suppressant, do I? Apparently not. As a result, the effectiveness of the suppressant decreased and likely led to the spewing of radioactive materials in the summer of 2013, according to an official with the Secretariat of the Nuclear Regulation Authority. The Secretariat issued administrative guidance to TEPCO instructing the utility to use the suppressant in a safe manner. You have to be instructed to do that now. Apparently so. That's the punishment. Instructed to use it in a safe manner. They diluted the suppressant in 100 parts water instead of 10 parts, which is what the manufacturer recommends. That, according to the manufacturer, produces the same result as using only water. But then you waste all that water. Deadline Kiev. Ukrainian authorities denied this week a report in pro-Russian media that a radioactive leak had taken place at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, Europe's largest. Documents were published by the pro-Russian newswire saying it came from Ukraine's emergencies ministry and showing a leak at the power plant had led to a spike in radiation over the past two days, exceeding permitted norms by 16 times. And what do you get? You get? The three officials from Ukraine's emergencies ministry, energy ministry, and the plant itself told Reuters news agency there had been 
no leak. The plant works normally. There have been no accidents, said an energy ministry official. They couldn't comment on whether the documents were authentic. Reuters was not able to verify them independently. Earlier this month, Ukrainian authorities reported an accident at the plant, but said it represented no danger to health or the environment. That was um, actually in December. An explosion and fire at Chernobyl in Ukraine, of course, was the world's worst nuclear accident. So they got a long way to go. I, I don't think they want to go there. But you, you'd have to ask the Ukrainians. Clean, cheap, safe, too far to go, our friend the atom. Lord, I swear, the perfume you wear was made out of turn up greens. Every time I kiss you, girl, it tastes like pork and beans. Even though you're wearing them, certified high heels, I can tell by your giant.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's. I said conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The use of 40 cable system in Japan around the world through facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet 7.490 megahertz shortwave on the mighty 104 in Berlin. Around the world via the internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want it. HarryShearer.com and KCSN.org. Available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com and available as a free podcast at WWNO.org, Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, and iTunes. And be just like not being thinly staffed. If you'd agree to join with me then, we do already. Thank you very much. Uh huh. Tip of the show, Chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO in New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The playlist of the music heard here on, the email address for this broadcast, and Cars I Talk t-shirts, all available at harryshearer.com. And me? <laughs> so glad you asked. I'm on Twitter. Yeah, I know. Big deal. At the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station. The change is easy. Radio Network. So long from Southern California. <laughs> <laughs>